chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 11. So we are in this series on the book of Judges, and it's a great book where we get to see pictures of Jesus of really through these imperfect saints that came before us. And we have, we have survived uh, Ehud and Eglon. We have come through Deborah and Barak. We have seen God work through Gideon. And now we've arrived at the story of Jephthah. And it's, it's really helpful. We're in the, the thick of the book. We're right in the middle now before we read. You're just going to notice it's going to get more and more wild. It's going to get more chaotic. The fir- in the, the big picture of the book, it gets moves north in Israel. And the further north you get, the more chaotic it gets. And Israel is in this downward spiral of unbelief that God keeps having to raise up deliverers to save them from themselves. And you're going to notice as we go from Jephthah to Samson, well, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, God's act of salvation, his grace, both becomes more dramatic and also more costly. And so that's where we're, we're headed is we're going to spend time in Jephthah this week and next week, and then we'll get to Samson in June. So let's, let's read our introduction to this great judge, Jephthah. Uh, this is God's word. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him rose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites? oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzvah. And the people 
The leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witnesses, witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mitzvah. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and revealed to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come eager to hear your words of, of grace and truth. And so we ask as we taught the kids this morning to, to cry out to you for help. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Uh, show us what Jesus has done. And make us a people who thirst for Jesus like we live in a dry and weary land longing for water, as though our very lives depend on it, because they do. So bless us today. Um, be gracious to us that we might be gracious to others and be a blessing to them. And so we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, one of the reasons... I like this book of Judges so much is, is the humanity of the judges and the people of Israel in general. I mean, they're just like us. I mean, every page you turn, they're doing something. I can, I can check that list. It's like, yep, that's me. Yep, I'm afraid. Yep, I'm, I'm weak. Yep, I need help. I need, I need somebody uh, to come and rescue me. And when you come to the story of Jephthah, it's no different because here you have a family squabble over money, uh, over inheritance. And, and the, the statistics say that $30 trillion will be spent in the next 30 years by families arguing over inheritance. Right? This is an old problem that's not going away. Right? $30 trillion spent among family members who cannot reconcile, who cannot get along, who cannot agree. And so that's why when we come to Jephthah's story and his family, it is oddly comforting because we have a man of faith whose family is just a complete mess. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, but who hasn't had that experience of coming to church uh, immediately after an argument on a Sunday morning? 
You know, it's, it, you don't want to talk about it. You don't want people to ask, how are you doing? You've just exploded emotionally. You're worn out, weary, frustrated. And I'm just going to assume it's not just me. <laughs> right? It's just how it is. It happens. And so it's easy to come to church, to come to a holy God, and wonder if there's a place for me and my problems. And because of the embarrassment of being a part of a normal yet dysfunctional family, and here we have God's gift to us, uh, Jephthah, that he raises up to be a deliverer. And so we have this good news. This is, this is good news. We have the reality that God raises up a Savior from somebody in the midst of a broken family system. It's deeply fractured. All right? I mean, it's not hard to picture, is it? Um, it seems like Jephthah is the oldest, like he was born first. Uh, but it's not hard to picture that Jephthah's bro- half-brothers grow up. They're finally big enough to, to push back, right? If you're the oldest, watch out for the youngest. <laughs> That's what my parents warned me my whole life. Right? These younger brothers, they grow up and say, all right, Jephthah, you're not like us. You're not part of the family anymore. We're not going to share our inheritance. We're not going to share the land. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And so they ran him out of town. You're not getting one penny of what our dad has. What a humiliating way to go. Shame just forced on Jephthah. This violence, uh, this life of violence was forced upon him, all because of circumstances he could not control. Born into a broken family system. It may be like being Jephthah being born into a nice family in the suburbs, shameful beginning, and then his family kicks him out and he has to survive on the streets of an inner city somewhere. Right? Maybe Troy, Albany, Schenectady, you pick one. And then years of silence. He gets ignored. No Christmas cards, no birthday matzah. Right? He gets nothing. He's done. And so this is encouraging as we jump in. Jephthah is giving the honor of being God's chosen deliverer, uh, to be God's instrument, his ambassador of reconciliation, uh, to be an instrument of grace in a, in a, in a, in a people and on a family that do not get along. So be encouraged. I love this. God chooses people not based on family pedigree or wealth or talent. He chooses the weak to shame the strong, the fool to shame the wise, as we sang this morning. So let's, let's consider Jephthah, who the writer to the Hebrews says, also was a man who was of whom the world was not worthy, the son of a prostitute. So I've got a couple points this morning. We're going to look at God's dysfunctional family, the people of Israel, and then we're going to look at Jephthah's dysfunctional family and see how those come together at the end. So look at verses 1 to 18. All right, we, we keep saying every week in Judges there are two introductions, two conclusions, six uh, minor judges, six major judges, and one anti-judge of Imelech. So we have two of the minor judges. It just means we have barely any detail. Uh, they're minor, right? Tola and Jair, if you remember last week, they're God's gift to Israel after the horror of Abimelech. Abimelech was a cruel leader. I mean, slaughter, violence, civil war. All we know is that they arose and there was some semblance of calm. This is really encouraging because it's just a reminder that God doesn't leave his people under bad leadership forever. He doesn't let corrupt leadership be the last word. He doesn't let God's people 
get beaten down forever and ever and ever, that evil has an expiration date. And you get a taste of that here. It's a reminder that after morning in the night, joy will come with the dawn. It's a reminder that in the valley of the shadow of death, God gives good gifts. He pours out oil on our heads. It's a reminder that when things are hard, hold on, because God will not leave you alone. I mean, even if it's through death, he's gonna, you're going to wake up to see a light that is more beautiful than you can imagine. Uh, Jesus seeing you face to face. And so... That's the transition to the story of Jephthah. Right? Tola was there for 23 years. He died. Jair, his, his son's donkey game was strong. That's all we know. They, they had donkeys. They were in charge. They, they, they kept some semblance of peace. That's the idea of donkeys. They're warriors patrolling. And then we come to Israel, God's dysfunctional family, this people that God has bound himself to in love. And we have the most complete description of their unfaithfulness. It's, it's embarrassing and humbling. It says they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Moab, the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. It's this picture that God's kindness is having no effect. Right? This list is the most comprehensive list in the book of their sins. It's, a, it's like... It's like a list of every lover that Israel chose over their God. I mean, this is, this is the, the list of Israel's current live-in girlfriends or, or boyfriends, however you want to put that. All right. So if you're the Lord, this is painful. And he's rightly angry. He is rejected and despised by his own people. This is, this is the story in the Old Testament. Welcome to God's dysfunctional family in the book of Judges and over and over again in the Old Testament. God is the father, Israel is the stubborn, rebellious son, and they run and run and run, and God pursues and God pursues and God pursues to the point where it's completely irrational. If you're, if you're in God's shoes, love is irrational. Covenant love, even more so. Right. Right, God provides. He stoops down like a loving father, the prophets will later say. He carries his people like a, a, a dad carrying a small child. He carries them out of Egypt, plants them in a land. He helps Israel learn to walk, right? It's like this tender metaphor, holding them by the hands. And yet Israel's love for him is like the morning dew. It's, it's there for maybe an hour in the morning till the heat of the sun burns, burns their love for him away. The point is God gets no respect from his own people, from his own children. And so... The Ammonites are raised up in the Philistines for 18 years. Israel is crushed and oppressed. And now that life stinks, they say, oh yeah, there's this guy named Yahweh who helps us. <laughs> Which sounds, like I said, this is so human. This, God speaks much louder to us in our pain. And we, we hear him much clearer in our difficulty. So it's from a place of stress, anxiety, pain, frustration, fear. They're miserable. That's when they repent. They own it. Say, God, we've sinned against you. This is, we've chosen the Baals. And this is what's fascinating as you read the story. I mean, you've been following. Um, God changes his tone here. All right? Verse 11, he's like, he's, I've heard your sob story before. I've heard this line. I've rescued you from Egypt, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Moanites. You know, all these ites keep harassing you, and I've saved you every time. 
I've forgiven you over and over and over again, and yet you keep leaving, so why should I take you back now? Connect that to your own story. You did that thing again. Why should God take you back now? See, God's complaint about his people is this. It's, I've abounded in nothing but grace towards you. But you don't want me. Your, your heart hasn't changed. You, don't love, you love the mercy, but you don't love the Lord of mercy. And so, God pulls out another tool in his toolbox to change Israel. He gives them the cold shoulder. He snubs them. He says, no, not right now. Then he uses sarcasm. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You've made your bed, now lie in it. That's basically what God says. This is what's so helpful about Judges. It's like we're tuning in into a... It's, it's like the marriage argument is live and we're, we're, we're listening in. Because right? this is how the living God, the real God, the holy God, the God of the Bible works, that he is a person who's offended and hurt by sin. That there is a clear painful relational break in the same way that when I am cranky and say something hurtful to my wife whom I love, we're still married, but there's coldness in the relationship until, until that word, that harm is dealt with. And so when Yahweh gives, when the Lord uses a cold shoulder and sarcasm and says, you've got to figure this out, He's showing he's not interested in just ritual. He's not interested in just empty words. He's not interested in being manipulated or bribed. It's not our goodness. It's not our repentance that that necessarily gets him to move. Why would God trust those who have a track record of being unfaithful? I think this is helpful to, to see God taking a hard line here. Because in our cultural air, we don't, you don't ever hear about someone publicly talking about their God, the God that they claim is the God of the Bible, who's, who would use words like this. Right? People would say, well, it's God's job to forgive. They don't say it's God's job to give me a cold shoulder because I need to learn something right now because I'm not changing. Right, here's, here's how one pastor describes the God, the general God that Americans like, not the real God. Just to be clear, this is not the biblical God. <laughs> don't, don't misquote me here. Right? This is God. You might want to lower your voice a little before you go in because he's sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't understand much or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about, when you really get him going, get him going they were a long time ago before most of us were even born. There was a time when people cared what he thought about and thought he was important in their lives. But that's all changed now. And God, the poor fellow, just never adjusted really well. <laughs> Life's moved on and passed him by, and now he spends most of his time in the garden out back. And I go there sometimes to see him. And we walk softly, and t- we walk and talk softly and tenderly among the roses. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about in God's old books. You know, earth swallowing people up, raining fire down on cities, that all seem to have faded in his old age. He's weak now. Now God's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. 
And when he does, it's usually through some slightly weird sign that I want to do that's telling me that I want to do anyways, regardless. That it's okay by him. And that's really the best kind of friend, isn't it? Ever, for anything. Oh, for sure, I know he wishes I would be better, more loving, more, less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. I'm sure he's totally fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Okay, we can go into God now. Don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's just grateful for any time he gets. <laughs> Dripping with sarcasm, obviously. See, when you come to the story, that's not the, pic- that's not the God of the Bible. The real God is a personal God, and he hears Israel's pleas for help, and he, doesn't, and he sees right through their, their facade. They don't want him, they just want his blessings. And he gives them up to their desires. And so there, there's just this thing that happens, and I, I think this would be my pastoral caution. It's really easy as we become, I want, I mean, my prayer for Hope Church is we would be a place that loves the costly grace of God and Christ, that creates a culture of grace. And when you use those words over and over again, it's easy to slip into the same patterns of Israel, to despise God's forgiveness even while we ask for it, to think less of it because we just take it for granted. Right. They don't, Israel doesn't cherish and delight in and, or in, in awe of God's continued faithfulness. They just demand it and expect it. Do you know what that's like? R.C. Sproul, the, the great Bible teacher, has, uh, I think it was him, he tells the story of being a, a college professor. And <laughs> as a college professor, anyone who teaches will know that uh, deadlines tend to be optional for students at times. And there was a due date for a paper, and a student missed the deadline, and he went in to RC and gave this long, sad story about why it was late. You know, his dog died, his computer crashed, his car broke down. I forget exactly what the details were. And the professor, being a, a human being, had pity and compassion and said, all right, just get it in t- Monday. I won't punish you for being late. And then this funny thing happened. <laughs> Word goes around when a professor is kind. And grace given was misinterpreted as being weak and easy to manipulate. So the next deadline rolled around and several students took the same path. They said, well, you know, it's good old RC. He's got to forgive anyway. He'll give me a good grade. And so when they turned it in late, they failed. And so they got angry and went to the professor and said, well, you, you helped that guy. Why are you not helping us? That's not fair. We demand that you cover our mistakes and our intentional failure Laziness and complacency. I mean, they didn't use those words, but they despised grace. They, they saw it. They demanded it. They expected it. They didn't love it. You can see where that's going in our text. God is deeply invested in knowing you and being known. And the purpose is to love him and his presence, not just to be bailed out again. He's not a divine vending machine. The point is we want to follow him. We want to keep his will. Where we want to spend time with him. That grace has an agenda. Uh, your heart. That you would respond in faith and love. So, after saying all that, you go in our text, in God's dysfunctional family, he gives them the cold shoulder, and, and here's the surprise. 
Um, he does bail them out again. He raises up Jephthah, but why? It's not because they repented. It says literally he became impatient over their misery in verse 16. He doesn't save them because they figured this thing out. He could no longer stand to watch the people he loved suffer. He could no longer watch his son be miserable and be in pain. It's a good father, is it not? Son is still not getting the message, and the father still comes to bail him out yet again and again and again. See, this is God's dysfunctional family. A heavenly father who is king who has moved to help and rescue because he grows impatient over our tears, over our pain. This is beautiful. God's gracious rescue is never coerced by us. It's, mo- it's never manipulated. It's moved by our misery. Right. And so f- especially for those of you who are currently afflicted, who are currently suffering, or know those who are suffering and afflicted, which is all of us, you're being shown a God who is afflicted by our affliction. It's a good way to shape your prayers. Is it not? Say, Lord, become more impatient over my misery because I am certainly impatient right now. This hurts. Act on my behalf. I mean, it's, it's showing you that the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. Think Jesus. The shortest, right? If you want, we want to start memorizing verses, start with John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. The Jesus who weeps at the sadness of his friends is the same God who weeps at those who have harmed themselves through unbelief and moves to rescue them. It's the same God. See, when our misery is ministered to by God's mercy, because God can't stand to see us suffer anymore, you're hearing the gospel in the Old Testament. This is good news. That's going after your heart to say, Be melted by that. (laughs) So, here's what we're seeing. God's dysfunctional family, God has been despised and rejected by his own family, and he is going to come to their rescue. And now we get a a flashback from the the spiritual relationship of God and Israel. Now we're going to come down on the ground with Jephthah. And this is really helpful. Because it puts flesh on what we're talking about. When you come to Jephthah's dysfunctional family in verse 17 and following, right here, the armies are amassed. You have the Ammonites versus the Israelites. Uh, the Ammonites are in Gilead. It doesn't look good. The Gileadites are saying, rightly, well, who's going to be our leader? Who's going to be our champion? Who's going to be our head? And when you come to Jephthah, you're supposed to connect what we, we just did talking about God to how Jephthah is treated in his own family. So put it this way, that Jephthah as God's rescuer is being reject, has been rejected by his own, just like God has been rejected. That Jephthah's experience with Israel as their judge mirrors how God is treated, like dirt. Right? This is what happens when you represent the Lord. You're going to take some knocks, take some hits for, rep- for being his representative. See, Jephthah is fully qualified. He is a mighty warrior. It's the same designation given to Gideon. He has skills. He has military know-how. 
but his brothers despise him because, because he's the son of another woman. He's an outsider. And so if you look at the, the way the text works, the way Israel is going to be, to be rescued by grace and grace alone, they have to show that they get the gospel of grace by reconciling with their brothers. Right? So you say you repent. You say you're sorry for your sin. Now show it. Move towards those you have harmed. Right. I think it's a visible picture of, of Jesus when he would later say, forgive one another so your Father in heaven would forgive you. Be merciful as God is merciful. Um, it's, it's this tension of the way you show that you understand the gospel of grace. It's going to affect your relationships. You're going to take the lead in reconciliation. See, God, working in the background here, is showing the Gileadites that they have to embody their repentance by eating crow, humbling themselves, and going to pursue the one they rejected. The exact same thing we have to do with God. I mean, these parallels are amazing. It's all the way through here. So look, God and Jephthah are rejected and despised by their family. Israel, right? they're suffering and miserable, and so they're moved by their own misery, and they go and ask for help. Right? It's not because they love the person they're asking for help. They're just moved by, by circumstances. Both God and Jephthah say, well, why should I help you? You hate me. And then Israel repeats their desire to be saved again and to let God and Jephthah be their head, their leader, their rescuer. And eventually, both Jephthah and God cave in and go to work. And it's just this fascinating Amazing picture that God would tie his reconciliation with us and say, now live that out with your neighbor. Do you see it? <laughs> In order to be rescued, to have a mighty warrior to lead them into battle, they have to go and say, we were wrong to kick you out. Repentance involves an ongoing life of learning how to love others the way we have been loved. It's the fruit it's the evidence that God is with you. Right? Israel is going to have to promise to follow the brother they despised, to honor the one they publicly shamed. Jephthah, amazingly, says, okay, I'll go. He forgives them on some level. It's a, it's an, this is a beautiful act of reconciliation. See, if you have that in your head... Right, that it, it helps you understand what, what God would have to do in Jesus to change our hearts. Right, I'm hoping you can hear the echoes of Jesus' life in Jephthah's experience. That Jesus, like Jephthah, was despised and rejected by his own. Um, Jesus came to rescue those who were God's enemies, his brothers, really all of humanity, as John 1 would say. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, and neither did the world. Uh, Jesus' brothers, his own people, basically said, I don't trust you. Look at, look at the circumstances of your birth. You were born due to sexual immorality. The reality for Jephthah is what they accused Jesus of in John chapter 8. They refused to be associated with Jesus because of his birth, despite Jesus being God's firstborn and rightful leader. Except... This is the ultimate evidence that we re we've rejected Jesus. 
Right? Jesus wasn't just despised and rejected by his brothers. He was put to death. He was put to death by his own because they did not want to humble themselves. They did not want to submit to God's rightful ruler over them. They did, we did not want to accept his grace and his mercy. So this is what's so surprising about the gospel. Jesus, but better than Jephthah, right, he does go forth to fight for us, those who have rejected him. He doesn't squabble over our worthiness to be included in his family. Jesus is God's only son, which means everything God owns is Jesus's. And Jesus says, I'm not going to fight over that. I want to share that with you. Right? And that same Jesus volunteers to, in love to die on the cross for those who were once his enemies so that we could be adopted as sons in the kingdom and if we're sons, then we're co-heirs with Jesus. We share in everything with him. We have the same heavenly father. It's a gift of grace. Right? All because the perfect son gets the permanent hold shoulder from God. The hell of judgment on the cross. It's an amazing picture. And if you would come to faith in this Jesus, we who were once God's enemies are declared God's sons, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, the ones who despised and rejected him. And this is the beauty. Jesus took the first step in reconciliation, in making peace between heaven and earth. And that's the pattern of the gospel. That's the pattern we're seeing all the way through Judges. It's not because we loved God, it's because he first loved us. And that pattern is immensely practical and it changes everything. That as forgiven sons, the scriptures call us ambassadors of reconciliation with God and with one another. 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. We're controlled by this reality. Because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus, died for all so that those who live would not live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's, here's my conclusion. This will be really practical. And I think this is Jephthah helping us. One of the signs that you and I understand the gospel, uh, the good news that God made the first move to come down to earth, to live the perfect life, to die the death we should have died and rise again, to be in this covenant relationship is that we respond in kind. We become a community of reconcilers, ambassadors of love, a love that moves first in offering forgiveness and working towards reconciliation in as much as it depends on us. Right. So think of the church, church community. Jesus is creating a culture of forgiveness and reconciliation where we embody what Jephthah did and what Jesus did Ultimately, what God does is moving towards one another. Right? I mean, the squabble over inheritance is the reality of church life. <laughs> this is not a perfect place filled with perfect people. I don't think you needed me to tell you that. <laughs> but that's, that's the reality. And people want to know, is God real? Is Jesus really among us? And one of the signs we 
show that Jesus is here and actively working is the way we respond to the gospel, reconciling with one another, prioritizing relationships with one another. So here's how Jesus would do it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to worship, like next week, when you, if you're coming to communion, and you remember that somebody out there has something against you, what matters most right now is you set aside your planned worship and go and pursue your brother in Christ. Be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. It's saying, run ahead of the consequences as much as you can. Go and move towards those that you have harmed. This is a hard principle. Unless you, unless you love that Jesus loved you first. And that becomes the, the, the resource and the power. That even if you're in the midst of it and saying, this is going to hurt. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But Jesus loved me this way, so I'm going to do this. See, the power of the gospel, that's how the power of the gospel is released in the church. Right? See, what Jephthah's account holds tightly, really close, is gospel doctrine, right, how God loves us, and then gospel living in community, how we love one another. It doesn't separate them the way we do. It holds them together. See, it's the, the orthodoxy of gracious community, right? The, the right way of living that we get to live out in front of one another in the watching world. As Francis Schaeffer would say, when you love like that in practice, it's beautiful, and it has to happen in the local church. You could apply this at home. This is reality. <laughs> right? We're going to have arguments in our homes as Christians. You don't need to be unnecessarily ashamed about it. I mean, the hard part about being a Christian is we think that we have to have all of our stuff together. And and the reality is the scriptures and Jesus don't expect us to never argue. They expect us to work it out through forgiveness. Right? So Jay Adams, he is a biblical counselor. And he describes the normal Christian home like this. It's really helpful. He just says, sinners live here. We should just put that on the billboard out front. Right? That there is no perfect church at home. It means your parents are going to fail. The kids are going to fail. Kids are going to bomb exams. They're going to fail miserably and publicly. Kids love to have temper tantrums in the most inconvenient and most embarrassing places. Um, At any given moment, you could walk by our house because everything echoes, and you will hear me barking at my kids because they're frustrating me. It's as much on them as it is me. Husbands and wives will disagree and argue. And they may even yell at each other at times. Right? Some of our, um, how do we say this, our cultural heritage will affect the way we argue. Some of us are louder. Some of us stew in silence. But the reality is there will be conflict in our home. But the, the main difference between a Christian home and our neighbors is not just that we have sinners in the home, it's that we have a sinless Savior who's bound himself in blood to come first after us, to show grace, to teach us how to live with one another. And when that sinks in, (laughs) that's a power that will move us to honor and forgive those we've shamed, we've hurt, we've harmed. 
It moves us to move first. Francis Schaeffer ends by saying, if the church is what it should be, you will find young people being attracted to it, including our, our kids growing up in the church, meaning if we confess our sins to our kids, uh, young people are going to show up. They'll be there with the blowing of horns, rejoicing that God is here among us. So, my prayer is that Jesus, by the grace of God, will make Hope Church and our homes a place of reconciliation with God and with another. Because Christ loved us first at his cost. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we, uh, we pray, don't, don't let us get to a place where we are bored by mercy and despise Jesus who gives it so abundantly and freely at his cost. And I pray if there are any here today who need to be reconciled first with you, who have been running and running and running, that they would turn around and see that it's been you that's been pursuing them all along. Lead them to the cross of Christ where forgiveness reigns. For those of us who are in the process of following our Savior and our King, Lord, we ask that you would empower us by your grace to be fierce ambassadors of mercy, that we would learn to lead the way with reconciliation in our relationships. So teach us to love. May the love of Christ control us as we go out into the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.